What's up, everyone? Welcome back to this very exciting episode of Market Saints, where I am joined by Wall Street and finance veteran, Les Quick. Thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Nice to be here. So just for some context for you guys about Les, he was a founding partner of the first ever discount brokerage firm called Quick and Riley back in 1974. He worked there for just under 25 years before it sold to Fleet Financial Services, now called Fleet Boston Financial Corporation for $1.6 billion. Following this exit, Les co-founded this very firm that I'm currently working in in 2004 as a family office to manage his family's wealth, which has now been extended as a broader RIA, which is a registered investment advisor that hosts over 500 clients and an AUM of about $5 billion. So that was, that was a bit of a mouthful there, but I just wanted to make sure that you had the proper introduction. You know, you got a, a lot to talk about and I'm kind of excited to get into it. So getting into my first question here, uh, I wanted to start chron chronologically here with Quick and Riley. So can you briefly talk us through what market niche you tried to fill? And also, can you explain to our listeners what a discount brokerage is? Because they might not be familiar. So um, my dad actually bought a seat on the New York Stock Exchange in 1974. I did not graduate from college till 1975, May of 1975. But in May of 1975, the Securities Exchange Commission, which regulates all the, uh, broker broker dealers, came in. And previous to that, there had been a minimum commission that you had a charge as a broker dealer to a client. So you know it, it probably would have cost for uh, hundred shares of IBM at that time, which was probably trading about hundred bucks. It would cost you hundred dollars to to trade that stock. They could charge you more. But um, they um, couldn't charge you less than, you know, fifty dollars. We came into the we we came into the market, and um, we said that we could do it cheaper, and we would charge half of what the big brokers were were uh, were charging. So um, that was really the beginning. We didn't know how that was going to work out. Um, and uh, my father offered me a job uh, on the bar car of the Long Island Railroad one night in July of 1975. And he said, why don't you come to work for me and I'll pay you $10,000 a year and you can live home for free and your mother will do your laundry and we'll see how it works out. Worked out pretty well. Um, we, we built the firm to 2,100 people over the next almost 25 years, as you said. And um, we vertically integrated the business and and um, and sold it to Fleet Boston. Yeah, I'm gonna. I want to get into that integration in a minute. And I think successful is most definitely an understatement. And uh, I just I remember I was reading up on Quick and Riley beforehand just to get some context about it. And I want you to really quantify this visual for me. There was there was a couple of articles talking about when you guys first started. You know, you offered obviously discount brokerage, lesser fees. And back in the day, this was, of course, pre, you know, completely technological trading. This was, you know, if I'm correct with the, you'd had to hand in, you know, trading cards, correct? And people brought suitcases of, uh, of trades that they wanted you to make to the office. No, they, they, brought, they brought shopping bags full of securities. Okay. I mean, valuable securities. They'd walk, or walk in with shopping bags. You would think that they were maybe, you know, uh, street people, uh, but 
they would walk in and start pulling certificates out of the bags. And yes, as you said, the, you know, everything was manual back then. I mean, we were calling down to the floor of the stock, stock exchange to trade with them. You know, they had it and they took it down on paper. You know, now it's all electronic and there's no paper involved. But um, it, it was just, a, it was a great study in, you know, watching these people come in with these bags and thinking, okay, how are they, how are they, what's the security around walking around with bags full of stock certificates? Uh, It's just amazing. Yeah, no, exactly. It was a pretty striking visual. So I had to make sure that I asked you about it. And uh, I kind of wanted to ask a little bit about the virtual, the virtual um, vertical integration and what I think is really interesting and unique about your experience in Quicken Riley is you kind of had to evolve through what I would consider to be the second big industrial revolution, which ironically happens to fall like exactly on the century. You know, you had the, the late 1800s and now you got the late 1900s with the popularization of the internet, e-commerce, the dot-com boom. So, I mean, ultimately this must've been really overwhelming because this was right in the midst of you guys integrating to branches around the country, even internationally. So what was the biggest unexpected challenge within this 10-year era of like rapid expansion and, and uh, technology, uh, tech boom, I would say? Um, and really, how did you adapt and conquer that? I, I, you know, I think, Cole, it started very slowly. Um, we started, you know, they, they had compute. They didn't have personal computers but they had computers and, and that enabled us to automate, you know, order entry down to the floors, at least from our office. It didn't automate the client coming into us. The client still had to pick up the phone and call us, but then it just slowly evolved and personal computers came out. And I would say that was the biggest, that was the biggest thing that, that, that changed things we had to wrap our heads around and I listen, I was in my mid forties at that point. Um, we had to wrap our heads around and get my dad and the management, uh, you know, and, and the other managers, the older managers um, to wrap their heads around. Okay. Now we're going to do this. We're going to let clients put in their own orders. Um, that was a big, that was a big hurdle at that point in time. Yeah, most definitely. I can, I can especially imagine, you know, there's kind of a, like a generational separation there too, where especially for somebody like your father, who's done something a certain way for such a long time that it's, you know, really ingrained within, within how he does business. I see the same thing with my grandfather who runs his own company and, you know, is very steadfast in kind of the, the method that he's, I mean, I mean, to be fair, I can't blame them. It's taken you that far. Right. And it's, it's gotten you so far, but obviously, you know, adapting with the times is a pretty integral part of business. So something that I uh, kind of wanted to follow up upon uh, with that is, did you find um, opening international branches to be particularly difficult? Is there anything that goes into expanding internationally uh, that wouldn't have to be taken into account, you know, opening up international or domestically rather? Well, you're, you're dealing with different regulatory authorities and like we opened a branch in Switzerland and it was, it was a whole process to get through the Swiss securities um, people to uh, authorize the branch being opened up. 
So I, not too much different than the United States, but just but different in that you were dealing with different people, different regulations, and uh, navigating that was was at times tough. But I think if you just blocked and tackled, uh, you got through it. Right, right. So I kind of want to get some more context about you as a person rather than you know some of your career. So you had obviously your dad offered you know you a job right uh, when you when you graduated college and that took up the first you know twenty five years of your career and then you know uh, eventually you came to and co-founded Simon Quick. But beyond your dad offering you that job, was there any other career path that you were considering at the time? And you also had a you know a block of six or so years between you know the the founding of Simon Quick and then the selling of Quick and Riley. Was there ever another? career path consideration within that period of time? Well, selling Quick and Riley in February of 1998, I signed my, my three brothers, my father and I all signed five-year deals. So that's really the, you know, you, you talk about six years, that's really the, the time period. So uh, I like to say I served my sentence out with the big bank with 35,000 people in it. And um and, and then in March of 03, when, when, I, uh, when I left the firm, um, that's really when the process started to identify, okay, what am I going to do with the assets that I have personally now? I mean, we kind of focused um, as managers of Quick and Riley Group on, on we left our money in there. We didn't, we didn't do too much diversification. Uh, we didn't sell a lot of stock. Um, and then when we sold what, and, and then when we sold to obviously fleet Boston, um, we, we did not liquidate a lot of stocks. So, um, we still, when, when I retired in March for three, I had a big position in uh, fleet Boston stock and I had to figure out how to manage that. Right. So was the reason that they brought you in on a contract was, was the purpose of that beyond them purchasing? Was it kind of to, for integration purposes to help almost, you know, train the company within this bigger organization now to fit in, fit the puzzle piece into the greater puzzle, and then kind of leave a team once you were that five, you know, your contract expired to make sure that it was self-sustainable within the uh, organization? Well, I, I think that in the deal was there were incentives for us to there were earnouts. Okay, so if we continued to do well, we'd earn more money. The the management team, not not just my family, but but other senior managers in the company. So we had incentive to <clears throat> to stay there to to um, continue to manage the manage integrating into a much larger organization and. Um, and so uh, they actually paid our earn out uh, two years early because the deal had been so successful uh, as far as they were concerned, um, which was you know, terrific. Um, I, I did, as I say, serve my sentence out and did my five years, but, um, but I, I, you know, the, the deal was very successful in the eyes of Fleet Boston management. Right. And then, of course, once that was once that was sold, and your uh, prison sentence had you know been served <laughs> properly, and you were free, man. You know, I want to talk about the impetus behind starting Simon Quick. So you were obviously, as you said, you guys came into some some wealth having sold the company, and you were looking for managers to manage it. 
And, you know, you felt that you couldn't find something that had the proper service and customer experience that you were looking for. So what characteristics did these firms lack? And you don't have to name names, but characteristically, what were the things that you were looking for that were lacking that then led you to say, you know what, I'm going to start my own family office so that we are, you know, in charge of our own destiny? Well, I, I kind of went to the usual suspects on Wall Street. Um, so those are the big firms and those are very familiar names uh, even today. And I just didn't like what I found out there. I, found, I, I thought there were too many conflicts of interest. In fact, I knew there were conflicts of interest all over the place. And, and just being a, you know, a commission, quote unquote, commission salesman, not that there's anything wrong with that, but they don't have the incentive like we do now as a registered investment advisor um, to do the best thing for the client. You know, it, it, this suitability standard that the broker dealers have is, is not as high a uh, standard as our fiduciary standard that we have right now at Simon Quick. And that is to get the best price for the client, to do the, do the absolute right thing for the client. Um, you know, a broker dealer could sell you a, could put a, an investment in your account and they could do it at a much higher, there, there could be different tiers of uh, product commissions or fees in those products. Um, and there could be a very low one. They could put the very high one in and it's still suitable for you. So I just looked at those, those conflicts of interest um, between a, you know, a quote unquote sales person and, um, and, the registered investment advisor model. And I just thought that that was a much better model to, um, to, you know, serve our clients. So can you, I, I obviously know what you're talking about because uh, it's my job to learn about what goes on in Simon Quick here, but for maybe some of the listeners that don't know the characteristic differences between the RA and what you were talking about before, can you talk a little bit about um, the, maybe what's appealing about uh, how Simon Quick operates? Well, I think, look, um, you know, certainly I'm investing side by side with my clients. So I don't feel like a sales, a sales guy. When I sit across the table from, and, and we're different in that we don't manufacture any products within Simon Quick. We go out, we outsource all our investment uh, management. So we've got a team of six people inside Simon Quick that, um, that research all our, you know, look at um, all our uh, uh, managers. And I think we've got about 70 of them across our platform and all different kinds of strategies, equity strategies, fixed income strategies, um, private equity, real estate. And we, we look at those in and put those on our platform to um, be able to pick and choose for our clients um, to uh, put into their portfolios. I don't have any ax to grind whether a product was in, you know, whether one product versus another product. We're trying to do it from an investment policy statement that we create for every client that really speaks to their needs, to their risk tolerance, to um, the timeline of the money that they're, um, you know, giving to us to uh, invest for them. 
And with all those uh, factors, um, we kind of pick and choose and, and we go back and forth with the client to, to um, explain it to them and to see if it makes sense to them. And if a client says no on that one, okay, we'll go back and we'll look for something else that might make sense uh, for your portfolio. So, um, so, you know, conflicts of interest in terms of, um, of, of products, um, you know, doing the right thing for the client, um, uh, you know, being very transparent, I think, um, consolidating reporting, you know, people have other relationships. We consolidate all those and look at them um, on, a, um, on a, you know, holistic basis for the, for the client, which I think helps them think about, you know, their whole financial situation instead of just having one thing over here, and another thing with somebody else. And most of our clients, we manage all their assets, but there are clients that, you know, that do maintain other relationships. Yeah, I think you nailed what stood out to me the most with that holistic approach. And the biggest thing that stood out to me was the fact that there's co-skin in the game. So that kind of brings like instant legitimacy to the table because it, it cuts through all of the, you know, salesmanship, like you said, where you don't even feel like a salesman because you're almost kind of, co-investors in a way, uh, even if you're on different sides of the table, in, in a way, it makes it seem like a, you know, a much more legitimate experience. So I definitely uh, agree with that. So you've been through, you know, a lot of facets of your career and what I've been kind of interested in, um, you have a very entrepreneurial mindset, which is sometimes unique in finance because a lot of finance is specialized in these big institutions. Um, and you've been more on the entrepreneurial side of finance, which is more rare. And I am just kind of curious as to your mindset of what kept you motivated if there was anything specific. So was it something like financial freedom? Did you love the fast-paced Wall Street environment? Was it competition? Did you have like a, you know, a drive and fire to be the best or what, what kind of made you tick? Well, I think working, well, the quick and Riley experience working with my dad and my three brothers, while not I wouldn't call it all wine and roses. Okay. I mean, it was, it, it was tough at times, but um, certainly we all knew we were pulling in the same direction. And so that was, that was good. When I finished at Quick and Riley, and even though I was there the longest of anybody except my father. Um, so, you know, the fourth employee back in 1975, people still looked at me and said, you know, well, you were just, you were, your father, you know, kind of paved the way for you. And I think some of the impetus for Simon Quick was, you know, I, I'm out to prove that, you know, it can build another successful enterprise. And it wasn't around, you know, daddy. Um, it, was, it was something that, um, that I helped conceive and, and building it and taking a lot of the experiences out of my, you know, quote unquote, Wall Street career um, and applying those to our culture um, has really driven me. Um, and I think um, I'd like to see all the people that work for us be very successful. And I'm trying to, kind of, you know, that's kind of been one of my missions is to, I, I, listen, I don't, I don't need to work, um, but I work because I like it. And I, I'd like to see some of the people that have really put their blood, sweat, and tears into 
joining me and my other partners to build this thing, I'd like to see them be successful, financially successful. So well would, as- would, would you say that, because I kind of had a natural follow-up to that of, you know, has that motivation and tick evolved into something different as, you know, no, it's undeniable now that you've achieved that first goal of motivation of, you know, building your own successful enterprise because it's undeniable. But I guess you kind of already answered what I was going to ask. Is that tick and motivation now morphed into the legacy of the people that are working here at Simon Quick and them themselves being successful and building a team of, you know, self-starting ambitious individuals? Is that kind of the motivation now? Yeah, I, I think it's it's that and it's wanting to perpetuate the firm, you know, perpetuate the the culture around the firm. Not necessarily that my name has to be on the door, but I think to um, to to have our people keep servicing clients in the in what I think is the right way, and I think they all agree with me that um, you know doing the right thing for the client and looking for you know great products. We're we're not far out on the risk spectrum. I don't want to be. I, I don't want to shoot for the moon. You know this is you know we're in the we're in the wealth preservation business, not the get rich business. And so um, I I think that just permeates the firm and I think it will perpetuate for a long time. Yeah, most definitely. So kind of parlaying into this question then, um, and maybe a a different form rather than away, away from Simon Quick, what would you say that you want your legacy to be remembered for beyond the enterprises that you've built and the people that you've trained and left behind? What would you ultimately say you want your legacy to be remembered for throughout your entire career or life? Um, I, I think um, my father encouraged us um, to um, to be charitable. You know, he said, "Look, a lot of people have not." You know, he said, "In in a lot of ways, we were very lucky. We were in the right place at the right time. Yes, we worked hard." But um, he encouraged us to go out and work for uh, organizations, charitable organizations that we were passionate about. And I think if I want to be remembered, you know, one of, one of the things I'd like to be remembered as is, a, is, is a, you know, not a philanthropist, but somebody who um, stepped into organizations and, you know, helped them with his treasure as well as his time and talent. And, um, and made the world a better place. Um, you know, we've done that. Um, I think my brothers and sisters and I, although we don't work together, we've all, um, we've all picked different organizations, but I think it really revolves around um, children and um, health um, and, and to some degree, the Catholic church. Um, and we have, um, I think we've changed lives. And uh, if that's what people remember me for, you know, besides having a great family and, and, and you know, working hard all my life, uh, if that's what I'm remembered for, that's, I'd be very happy. That doesn't sound too shabby at all. Not too bad at all. So my very last question, kind of a spoof in comparison to everything else that I seem to have asked you throughout this interview, but I'm kind of curious so obviously I go to school at the University of St. Andrews, first golf course ever founded there. Um, I personally still suck at golf, uh, meaning to get my handicap above. You, you and me both. Yeah. Okay. So, so, all right, maybe, maybe then this will disprove my thesis. How much golf do I have to play to get, enter into the financial field? How much is that incorporated into business? 
is it is it true is the stereo and archetype true i i don't think there's another place where you can spend um four hours with somebody and really get to know them know their character um know their their personality um and whether um you know whether you want to do business with them or not uh so i think i think golf is a very very valuable thing and you don't have to be you don't have to be a single digit handicapper i think you you can you know in the low teen mid to low teens you can carry yourself all i say to people is if if you're going to play golf move okay just keep moving okay don't stop dawdle you know you know take a long time over a shot get up there be thinking about it when you're walking to the ball and keep moving and anybody will play with you i think um, so yeah no, if i know i highly endorse golf if you quick if you quickly give yourself enough mulligans and whatnot i mean you'll be <laughs> fine you, you miss a couple you know letters sure. on the old scorecard you know right. double bogey becomes a bogey you know if you <laughs> notice um have you ever without naming specifics obviously have you ever done or not done business with somebody based on just like how they, how they play the, how they play golf. Like actually if they, you know, personality wise, if they get super upset about something or have you ever actually based a deal off of somebody's personality coming through the sport itself? Um, yes, I have, but I've also, um, gone into deals with my eyes wide open in terms of their personalities if I've played golf with them. So it, um, I, I think it, it will give you a warning sign. I have, you know, club people who throw clubs and things like that. So, hey, um, sorry, the dog is gone a little crazy. It's all right. I got I got two dogs myself. It's uh, understandable. <laughs> um, so we, um, yeah, I, I I have not done deals because um, they just are they're assholes. Okay, and I'm sorry for using that language, but that's just the way it is. Sorry, right. this is a this is a pro uh, any type of language podcast. No no restrictions. <laughs> fine. No affiliations. Uh, not a problem. All right, good, good, good. All right, but that's great. You've motivated me <clears throat> to uh, get my butt back on the old course and uh, not, maybe not suck so much. So <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll definitely put that on the radar. But I really appreciate you taking you know the time out of your day. You know the end of a Thursday going into a. I mean Friday is kind of half day for a lot of people. Some some people are mentally set sail already for the Fourth of July. So I really appreciate you taking the time and hope you have a really, really good uh, family-oriented uh, holiday weekend. Thanks, Cole. Look forward to being with you the rest of the summer. Thanks. Most, most definitely. Well, thank okay. you guys for listening to this episode of Market Saints. I really appreciate it. And uh, peace out. Mm-hmm.